Man, I could not be more excited about Lakeisha's um, uh, candidacy. I, I'm, I'm most excited about the fact that she does care about people, and she cares about people because of Christ in her. And when you have Christ in you, uh, you will care about people. Interestingly enough, it's what our message uh, is going to be about this morning. It wasn't necessarily planned that way. I've been working through the life of Christ, as you all well know. Uh, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is starting to see quite a crowd everywhere he goes. You know that it's not too much longer after what we're going to talk about tonight or today that Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 on the hillside. A lot of amazing stories are about to unfold. Jesus' popularity should be no surprise to anybody at this point. He has been wildly successful at raising people from the dead, casting out demons, providing for people, taking care of people, loving people, bringing in a religious revolution. And now, in one of these, what would seem to be generic stories or accounts that very few people know, I want to read, begin at verse number 35 of Matthew 9. The Bible says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But, here we go, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. This is God's word. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, we've got a job to do. We've got a job to do. 41 years ago tonight, one of the most epic episodes of a television show in history aired. It was November 21st, 1980. 350 million people around the world and 80 million people in America gathered around their television sets to watch the season opener of the famed show Dallas. Some of y'all are old. I was two years old when this happened. What happened in March of the same year was the famous ending of season number two where JR was shot for the next eight months. The question was put on t-shirts and advertisements, who shot JR? Then on November 21st, the episode was solved when Kristen Shepherd's JR wife's sister and his former mistress was announced as the culprit. 83 million people in America watched that episode. 76% of televisions that were on that night tuned in to that show. The population in the United States of America in 1980 was 220 million. That means that over one-third of American households watched Who Shot JR? They thought this was a big deal. They believed that this was important. You know, I think, I, think, <laughs> I think when we look back on our lives, we're going to be astonished at what we actually thought was important. And I think we're going to be 
demoralized by what we didn't think was important that what actually was important. Did you know that less than half of all Americans attend church in 2021? That's the first time in the history of our country that that number has been below 50%. Only one-third of all teenagers in the United States of America consider themselves to be religious. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of kids ages 13 to 19 claim to have no faith at all. And combine that with the fact that less than half of all believers across all of evangelicalism say that they have shared their faith with someone in the last six months, I would say that we have a crisis on our hands. A crisis where a world is running as far away from God as they could possibly run and a church that's running as far away from lost people as we can possibly run. You know, there's only one thing worse than being lost. It's being lost with nobody looking for you. In our text today, we see Jesus touched and moved by a group of people that had no shepherd. They had no true religion. They had no faith to follow. And Jesus is going to share with his disciples how important our job is to reach people without Jesus Christ and share the gospel with them. The first lesson we learn from our text is that we must have compassion for the harvest. We must have compassion for the harvest. Look at what it says again in verse number 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved. And I want to say there's two parts to having compassion, which means share or feel with. The Greek word compassion is broken up into two words. The first word is passion or feeling. It's the word themos or, or uh, temperature. It has to do with how I feel. Con, the, the prefix of the word, has to do with share with. So when you have compassion on someone, it means you're feeling or experiencing what they're feeling. And folks, listen, the only way to experience and feel what people are going through and therefore do something about it is, first of all, we must see what Jesus saw. Did you notice that it says here he saw the multitudes and it's what he saw that moved his heart to compassion. So we must see what Jesus saw. You know, Lamentation says this, my eye affects my heart. In order to see people in need, you've got to be looking for people in need. May I say this this morning, I think we've become too busy to see what people are going through. We have become so self-absorbed. We have become so distracted We are focusing on people as problems, distractions, hindrances, sometimes opportunities, stepping stones. We view them as clerks, waiters, grocery baggers, mechanics, bankers, hairdressers, or somebody else's business to deal with. And what we find in our text is Jesus owned the people that was around him by seeing what they were going to and feeling what they were experiencing. Because our lives have in many cases become so self-focused And nothing will bring out selfishness like the holidays, unfortunately. And the selfishness that we've experienced have caused us to lose our urgency of people that need the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the first time I really remember feeling something by seeing something was the first time I went to the third world country of El Salvador on a missions trip. I was there to teach. I was there to preach. I was teaching in a seminary for about three days. And I remember flying into this. Uh, place. Uh, nobody spoke my language. I didn't know who was picking me up from the airport and all I had was an address and was hoping I could spit it out in Spanish good enough that somebody would understand me. I had no idea who I was looking for. I had no idea where I was. 
I was in the major capital. All I knew about San Salvador, it was one of the most gang-ridden towns in the entire world. And so I flew in. I was a little bit nervous. Didn't know who was picking me up. I ended up somehow making it to a driver and driving up through San Salvador into the hills of Kunta Peque, El Salvador. When I got there, I will never forget as long as I live. I was on my way to the church. And when I was driving through the center of that city where the church was, the city dump was inside of the downtown area of the city, like just there. It was like another building. It was right in the middle of everything. There was a building here, there was a building there, and in between the two buildings there was trash bags and debris and just all kinds of garbage just scattered. It was almost overwhelming. It was like a mountain of garbage. But what I saw in the mountain of garbage was families and their children climbing through trash bags grabbing whatever scraps of food they could grab for their evening meal. And it does something to you. It does something to you to see somebody in need. I remember the first time I, or one time I was uh, in California and we were visiting homes and, 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 and the ministry that I was at there. And I remember knocked on a door and, and, I, and, and nobody came to the door. And I remember knocking again and, and this little girl ended up coming to the door. She was wearing nothing but a diaper. She couldn't have been uh, 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 around maybe two years old. And somehow she was able to get to the door and she opened up the door. And as soon as the door opened, I just looked at this precious little kid. And the next thing that happened to me was this huge waft of marijuana smoke that came uh, puffling, uh, 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 moving out of the door. And it hit me like a brick in my face. And I don't know why, but just something that hit me there was here's a little girl. In a house. And ain't nobody inside that house cares about her. Nobody in the house even cares enough to stop what they're doing to even get the door. Nobody knows the last time this girl was cared for, loved on, the last time this girl was hugged, probably treated like an inconvenience. And it just, it just so overwhelmed me that day. But here's the key to both of those stories. Both of those stories necessitated that I had to get out there somewhere. I had to be somewhere so that I could see something that was going on. And unless I'm out and about and see the needs of people, I am never going to see what Jesus saw. When Jesus saw what he saw, then Jesus uh, was then moved with compassion. And we must be moved with compassion. The word compassion here in verse number 36 is the word literally bowels. In fact, I think it's over in Philippians chapter 2. It's translated bowels of mercy. Compassion literally means it's something that you feel inside. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever seen something that turns your stomach, so to speak? It was that your, your insides were affected, they were agitated. In other words, by seeing somebody who was in distress, by seeing someone that was miserable, literally you felt mercy and compassion well up inside of you because they were so miserable. And this text teaches me why they were miserable. They were miserable for two reasons. One, they were fainted or they were uh, wearied as the text says. It means they had come into extreme sorrow. They were tired. They were laid down. They had no more strength to go on any further. I meet people like this every day of my life, no doubt. They're tired. They're done. They've been through it. They've burned through marriages. They've burned through wealth. They've burned through romances. They've burned through pleasures. They've burned through acceptance. They've burned through popularity. They, they have no more family. Therefore, now they're reeling and, and weary from divorce and bankruptcy and a pregnancy out of wedlock and suicide and rejection and rebellion. This is what is going on in our culture. It's what's going on with your neighbors. It's what's going on in 32211 and 32277. Whether you know it or not, whether you're aware it or not, there are people out 
out there that are tired, they're weary, and they need Jesus. They also were scattered, the Bible says. They were thrown down or literally abandoned. They were utterly neglected. Nobody cared about them. As I said before, the only thing worse than being lost is being lost with nobody looking for you. The only thing worse than being down and tired is having being down and tired and have nobody caring for you. And unfortunately, the only thing these people had at this point were the self-serving religious Pharisees. You do realize that the Pharisees' religion was very self-serving but it was not very other-serving. In other words, they were in it for what they got out of it, not through what they could give out of it to others. You know, i got to tell you, folks, you can be religious, and your religion can be doing no good for anybody else. It's possible to be a Christian. It's possible to be a part of a church. It's possible to say that I know and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and literally have my life have no effect as to shepherding, caring, ministering to other people. It reminds me of what the Ethiopian eunuch said in Acts chapter number 8. I mean, here he was, returning from Jerusalem. He was so interested in religion that he actually purchased a scroll of Isaiah while he was there. Returning from Jerusalem, going back home, he's riding in a chariot. This is a government official. He was likely the minister of finance in Ethiopia. He was rich, but he was empty, and there's a lot of people like that. He had heard some things taking place in Jerusalem. He was interested enough to start reading the Bible. By the time Philip the evangelist caught up with him, he was already in Isaiah chapter number 53. He had been reading page after page after page after page. And then the Ethiopian eunuch is stopped by Philip, and Philip sees what he's reading, this is what he says. Do you understand what you're reading? And you remember the famous statement that was said back to the, uh, from the Ethiopian eunuch to the evangelist Philip was this. How can I understand unless some man should guide me? I got to tell you, that is the statement of the world out there. There are people that are hungry. They are struggling. They do need something. But the bottom line is this. There's just no one there to care and no one there to share. We must have compassion for the harvest. I think we have become hard-hearted and dry-eyed. A guy came to William Booth one time and he said, I don't understand this. I read your sermons. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. The guy says, I've tried, I read your sermons. He said, I preach your sermons. I take your sermons. I preach them. The only problem is when you go and you preach these sermons, lots of people come to faith in Christ. You have dynamic and dramatic effect on audiences where you go. He said, I take the same sermons and I go and I preach them to the same kind of audiences. He says, when you preach them, lots of people get saved. When I preach them, nobody seems to be getting saved. Do you have a suggestion for me? And uh, William Booth wrote back in a telegraph two words. Try tears. You know, when Jeremiah sat in the heap of the destruction of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations, in chapter 1, verse 12, he cried out these words to a group of people that seemed to be passing by without concern. He said these words, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? In other words, I I like to say it like this, Does it bother you that it doesn't bother you? And I think that's where we are. It's not that we're not bothered. It's that we're not even bothered that we're not bothered. Hey, it's one thing to not be bothered about people dying and going to hell every single day. It's another thing to not be bothered that I'm not bothered. 
Oh, listen, if I'm not bothered, if there's no touch, look, if I'm not even in remotely engaged with ministering to people's life, and there's not even something inside of my heart right now that is saying, that's you, man, then I ought to be bothered that I'm not bothered. Be asking God, where's my compassion? Where's my heart? How did my faith become a ritualistic routine? How did my faith become just average? How did my faith become all about me and not about the masses? It's a fair question today. We must have compassion. Number two, we must have concern over the harvest. What is the concern over the harvest that Jesus shares? He shares two things. Number one, the harvest is plenteous. In other words, there are lots of people out there without the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 4 verse 5, Say not ye, there are four months, and then comes harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look unto the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Listen to Acts chapter 18 verse 10. Uh, This is what God said to Paul, I am with you, and no man shall set on you to hurt you, for I have much people in this city. The city of Jacksonville, Florida is growing like crazy, in case you didn't know. I just drove to Walmart. I don't, I don't go shopping anywhere. Somehow yesterday I found myself in the unfortunate circumstance of having to actually go in person into a Walmart. It was awful. It was even worse because I let my teenage daughter loose for about 10 minutes, which turned into about 45 minutes, and I couldn't find her. And then it got worse, okay? Just, I hate being there. But, man, when I pulled into Walmart, I haven't been over there in months. And, oh, my goodness, all the houses that are being built, I'm looking at my own neighborhood and the neighborhood just north of there. I mean, if you looked at the price of houses recently, do you understand what's happening in this city? This city is exploding with growth. It's exploding south. It's exploding all around us. And the fact of the matter is, folks, the more people are the more people without Jesus Christ. We are a city nearing or over a million people. It's not like we're in Mayberry any longer, folks. There's people out here, lots of people out here. Do you realize that right here where our church sits, if you were to get a map of Jacksonville out and you were to see the actual marker on Google Maps where our church is, you would understand how significant this location that God gave us is. We are literally right smack dab in the middle of the most populated area of this city where there are so many houses around we can never get to all of them in a year if all of us went out every day and tried to reach people with the gospel there are people here that need the Lord the fields are white unto harvest but the problem is complicated by the fact that the laborers are few a laborer is a toiler somebody who's working in the harvest field somebody who's out there in the field doing something about the field being cultivated You know, I've met a lot of people in churches that are willing to do a lot of things. They'll sing, they'll preach, they'll teach, they'll mop, they'll restock, whatever. They'll watch children, they'll teach children, they'll work with young people, they'll teach young people. But the fact of the matter is, every single Christian has this responsibility. To be a laborer in the field of souls. Let me rephrase that. You have the responsibility. I have the responsibility. Sharing the good news of Christ with those around us. We, are, we have an opportunity. We have a sphere of influence. There are people that we know that nobody else knows. We're like Andrew, Cornelius, the Philippian jailer, and the woman at the well, all of which were touched by Christ and all of which went out and touched those immediately around them. You were not given a job for money. You were given a job to be the missionary from River City Baptist Church at your job. 
Every single one of us at school, at church, in our community, in our neighborhood, it's our job to tell others about Christ, and yet the laborers are few. I would never ask for a show of hands, and I'm certainly not trying to make anybody feel bad this morning. It's a challenge on my heart today, and that is this. Have you shared Christ with anybody? I meet people all the time. They always want to do all kinds of ministry stuff. Well, friend, let me explain something about ministry to you. Ministry is about people. And if you're below people work, you're below ministry work. And we can talk about ministry, and we can talk about church work, and we can talk about all the stuff we do, but the minute we lose our focus on people, we have lost our ministry. I think of Randy Yearden. He's a member of our church that often is sick uh, with, with a major neck pain. He was here on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday night. It was good to see him. Every time he shared his testimony with me, I always think about the shop teacher at Terry Parker High School that had Randy as a high school kid in his class and took the time while Randy was a shop student in his shop class to tell Randy about Jesus Christ. You say, there's all kinds of restrictions on us now. I want to tell you what, the word of God is not bound. And I will tell you that Randy would stand here today if he could and he would tell you it was a shop teacher when I was 16 years old before I went to the Marines that led me to Jesus Christ. I think of D.L. Moody led to Christ at a shoe store in Boston. Last time I was in Boston, back in last February, I, I searched out and found the spot, the plaque that hangs in the city of Boston where he was just a shoe cobbler working in a shoe store and he had visited a church in Boston and a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball saw his class as more than just a lecture. He saw it as people and he went out and found D.L. Moody at his shoe store and led him to Jesus Christ and thousands and millions of people came to Christ through D.L. Moody. Why? Because one guy got a burden for one guy. We must share the concern for the harvest and finally we must obey the commandments for the harvest you realize in verse 38 I want to share with you something very unique in verse number 38 we are exposed listen to this very carefully to the only prayer request Jesus ever gave the only prayer request Jesus ever gave is right here pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his harvest. There's a twofold response that we should have to this need and it is this. First of all, we should pray for laborers in the harvest. I'm talking about praying as a church, praying as a people that God would use us in the harvest field. That God would literally thrust people out into the field. I haven't shared everything that I pray and hope and dream that our church will get to do before they're throwing dirt over my cold dead body. But I am telling you this, we're not doing enough and we need to do more. I'm talking about there is a world out there needing churches. There are churches right now that are closing their doors. More churches are closing today right now than ever before in the United States of America because honestly, pastors are tired, they're run over from COVID and there are more today. And there were, it was already bad enough. And I'm praying and just, just was with a pastor just this past week and, and we're looking at some partnerships and praying how that we can do more to start more churches and do more with people. And you know what that's going to require? It's going to require laborers. It's going to require people that are involved. In the field. You want to know what I'm praying for our teenagers? I'm praying that God will stir in them and he will thrust them out into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying for our kids. I'm praying for my kids that God will use. They don't have to be pastors. They don't have to be preachers. But God help us all. They must be involved in the ministry of harvesting souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I want anything less for my children than that, 
I may as well hang up shop. I would ask you, why are you even here? If it's not a game and this is not a show, then why are you here if you're not here for that? Pray for laborers. Participate in the labor. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. At some point, somebody's just got to get activated about it. Somebody's got to get involved with it. Somebody's got to take ownership. Somebody's got to say it's not just something that's a good theory. It's something that I am going to do. So quite simply, here's my challenge to our church today. There's a whole lot more we could do, but I think this is a fair challenge to our church. It is November 21st, 2021. Would it not be a fair challenge to implore everybody in this room, whether you are a guest or a member of this church, could you not reach out and touch one life in the next 12 months? Just one. One person. I was preaching a number of years ago in Indianapolis, Indiana, for a friend of mine who graduated from college with me, and he was a youth pastor. I had just begun to travel. This was early 2000s, maybe 2003 or so. One of the first evangelistic meetings I held, and it was a youth meeting. And Andy told me, my buddy Andy, who was a youth pastor, told me, he said, you know, Brian, I'm... Uh, here's what we're praying for. We have about 40 kids in our youth group, and we're praying that God will give us 80 for this youth rally, 80 kids. And the way we're trying to accomplish this is we're asking everybody in the youth group to invite one friend to come with them, and if everybody does that, we'll have 80. He said, so that's what we're praying for. So I came and, and showed up that night, and, and there were 86 teenagers that showed up, 86. Among them was a, a little ninth grade girl named Jessica. Jessica had been invited by her friend Kristen. Kristen was a ninth grader and went to a public school there in Indianapolis. And when her youth pastor was sharing this burden, she immediately thought to herself, well, I know Jessica. I've known Jessica since we were in kindergarten together. We've been in the same school, same grade. Our last names are similar, so we have lockers near each other and we always sit together. And yet, I've just, you know, I've never really thought about talking to her about God and Jesus and inviting her to church. She said, but I just made up my mind right there in that service. That's exactly what I was going to do. And that's what she did. The next day, she got to her locker that morning and she mustered up the courage and prayed a prayer and said to Jessica, Hey, hey, would you, um, would you come to this youth activity I'm having at my church? It's going to be a fun night and, and I think you'd, you'd enjoy it. And the girl said, well, yeah, I have to ask my parents, but I would, I would love to come with you. And so the next day, Jessica came back to school and said, hey, my parents said it was fine. And Kristen said, great, I'll, I'll pick you up. And it starts Friday at 6.30, so I'll, maybe I'll pick you up about 5.30. And so that night, about 6.30, Kristen and Jessica bounced out of their car and shuffled over with the other 84 kids. And they were playing all kinds of games and activities, ate pizza, and ushered them into this youth room, packed out with kids. After some songs and games, I was tasked to stand up and open up the Bible and preach a simple salvation message, which I did. That night, among the other 10 or so kids that accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, Jessica was one of them. And, of course, I was on the road. I, I left the next morning, and Andy would care for these teenagers. But Andy and I were friends, so we would often text back and forth, and Andy would say, Brian, man, we had, we had three more kids baptized from this youth rally, and they got saved that night. And then he would always, at the end of the email, say, man, you got to meet this kid named Jessica. This is unbelievable. I mean, she got saved and she got saved. How many of y'all know? Seems like some people get barely saved and then some people like get really saved. Amen? 
She got really saved, like, like for real. She was on fire. She would come, and he said, man, every time she comes to church, she's got questions. She writes them out. She reads the Bible, writes out these questions, and brings them to me. And I become like the Bible answer man, and, and I'll give her the answers and email them back to her. She said, it's just exciting. And then he said this, hey, Ann, guess what? He said, we decided we're going to take our kids to camp next summer to Louisiana where you're preaching, all the way from Indiana. We're going to drive down, and you're going to get to meet them all. I said, that's awesome. So I remember that day that came, and, and the big red bus pulled up from Birch Terrace Baptist Church in Indianapolis. I saw him, and I ran out as fast as I could and, and hugged Andy when he got off the bus, and kids started piling off, and they were, they were all talking and having a good time. And, and, then, and then this little group of girls walked up to me, and they were all in unison. They were like this little huddled mass together. They had obviously been planning this for a few hours, and they walked up to me, and the spokeswoman said for the group, somebody would like to say hi to you. And I was like, well, go tell somebody that I'll, I'm right here. And they kind of then parted ways, and there was Jessica. And she, she stepped out from the middle of the crowd, and she said, Hey, Mr. Sams, I, I've been telling my friends that when we go to camp, I just wanted to come and, and meet you and, and just tell you I'm the one that got, I'm the one that became a Christian that night you preached in, in our church in Indianapolis. She was now going into 11th grade, and she said, Yeah, I'm... I, I believe, I believe God's been working in my heart. I, I, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do for other people what Kristen did for me. And she did. She went on to Bible college. Somewhere over the last few years, I've lost track of her. I don't know where she is now. But I do know where Kristen is. I verified it this morning, looked it up again. You probably wouldn't be surprised to know she's married to a youth pastor out in Missouri, faithfully serving the Lord like she was when she was in ninth grade. You don't just accidentally start caring for people. You don't just accidentally start serving people. At some point in your mind, you just decide, this is me. This is what I'm going to do. And by God's grace, I am going to invest in the harvest. How about you? Let's pray together.